human rights steps and missteps are the result of concrete actions, which are the result of concrete choices. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch podcast series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dipti, and on this episode of the History Watch podcast series, I'm in conversation with Dr. Jeremy Moran of the Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Manitoba, Winnipeg. Join us as we discuss the problems and politics of representing atrocities. So I've always been very interested in representation of atrocity and uh, kind of the challenges of making meaning out of kind of the indescribable, the unfathomable. That was Dr. Jeremy Moran discussing his research interests. Jeremy has a PhD in cultural mediations from Carleton University. I asked him to tell us about some of the specific exhibits he's worked on at the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. There are 12 galleries in the museum that explore a wide array of topics. There are galleries devoted to Canadian human rights history, the human rights law in Canadian, different Canadian legal traditions, including Indigenous traditions, very contemporary human rights issues like the Rights Today Gallery. So there's a whole bunch of different types of stories. So I I do a lot of work on um, atrocity representation, as well as some other uh, stuff that's a bit newer to me. I work here on three galleries, which one gallery is called Examining the Holocaust. I also work on a gallery that's called Turning Points for Humanity, which looks at the growth of international human rights law and human rights social movements since the Second World War. And this is the gallery where uh, you helped us with, uh, Audra. And then you also helped us in the next gallery that I work on as well, Breaking the Silence, which looks at a large cross-section of uh, large-scale human rights violations of many different types including the Armenian genocide, the transatlantic slave trade, Indian residential school system in Canada. And what it looks at is how people, uh, individuals and groups, have tried to use human rights to drag these atrocities from uh, the darkness into the light of day, uh, to expose them and pursue justice reconciliation. So I would say if I had to, if somebody said, to me, you know Jeremy Moran, what do you, what do you think his, he does? I would say that your both your training and your work involves really the politics of representation. Is that fair? I would say so. In a broad, in a broad sense, politics of representation, yeah. Um, how, would you refer, how would you rephrase that? I don't know if I would rephrase it. I would just kind of continue, continue rambling for a while. Oh, you'd uh, qualify it. Part, You're an academic. You'd qualify yeah, it. I guess like, like cultural mediations implies is that any representational form is kind of constrained and shaped by a whole plethora of factors, uh, not, not only including the uh, kind of cultural context in which it's being produced, but also the cultural context and the history that it is reproducing, and how mediations are informed by the culture that uh, produces them, and how the mediations also inform the culture that produces them. You know what I'm saying? Say that, repeat that last bit again for me. Me Mediations, like films, like art, like uh, music, are informed by the culture in which they're produced. Right. But they also in turn inform the culture. Okay, so there's a dynamic at play. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What did you say? You said content meets form. Is that the the? Yeah, I would say that's generally how I describe my academic interests. Your academic interests, and I imagine that comes over into into the exhibitions in in human rights as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I started at the museum like almost immediately after I finished my PhD, so 
transforming from the mediation of a 400-page dissertation to a 50-word text panel, form plays a pretty big role. Um, it's uh, di different questions of form uh, than maybe some of those that I was dealing with during my uh, PhD, but the question of how to mediate uh, very difficult content, both into uh, a medium of museum exhibits and also within an institution whose mandate is a human rights museum, both of those aspects inform kind of how the content gets, um, I guess, translated or represented to visitors to interpret. Have there been debates about what, for example, on any particular topic that the museum was considering, debates about whether something actually was or was not a human rights violation? Like, what, what's the debate? What's the discussions that go on in deciding what goes in and what doesn't go in? And then... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. I mean, it's 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 an ongoing. Uh, it's it's always discussion and dialogue, um, both in terms internally and with uh, with different stakeholder groups and with other kind of consultants that we work with. It's ne it's not it's, de it's never static. Uh, there's no static definition of what human rights is, and we don't we don't try to do that in the uh, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. You know, as far as that, we don't rely on a static definition. I mean, we do, of course, include exhibits about, you know, things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other instruments that attempt to codify and define human rights. But we don't uh, ascribe a static definition of human rights that we try to base upon. We actually look to kind of the lived experience of the stories and how are these stories uh, being told and circulate kind of in, in public discourse. Mm -hmm. Do they circulate in a manner and are discussed in a manner that can uh, illuminate human rights lessons for uh, our visitors according to various topics. Mm -hmm. um, and then what we, and then kind of at that point, then we have to start aiming for questions of like representation, geographical representation, gender representation, ethnicity representation, different types of story representation, ensuring the voices of the, um, uh, ensuring that um, voices of marginalized groups are able to come through mm -hmm. um, in our exhibits and um, so we, we're, we're never going back to a static definition. We always kind of let those questions of like, do are these stories, do they illuminate something about human rights as human rights is being understood and debated? Those are the kind of things that we deal with. Yeah, because I imagine for the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, if they did develop a static definition, it would actually create more problems than one where yeah. you try to, to be fluid and dynamic and allow for... for it would for be us. very limiting. It would be very limiting. stakeholders having to wanting to to um, communicate with stakeholders getting input from various stakeholders and whatnot but what about to what degree does this this third element play into to decisions I mean and that being controversy knowing that you're in some things some exhibits you will be courting controversy because there's no way you can keep everybody happy. There are multiple stakeholders, multiple perspectives, multiple political points of view. And by politics, I mean small p, as yeah. well as big p. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. You can't deal with human rights uh, issues and stories and not uh, get into some controversial issues where different uh, individuals or groups have different perspectives. Um, certainly, uh, engaging with stakeholders on, of, um, on various sides of issues is one strategy, mm -hmm. certainly not the only strategy. Uh, certain cases where, like, there are certain cases where the facts of the case are kind of settled. Uh, so it's not as though we go, like, oh, let's, we have to talk to Holocaust deniers as well. <laughs> right. You know, 
There are other um, issues that are a bit more uh, live, even even if the kind of academic side of the debate has been sort of laid to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, either the kind of social so, social popular or even political big P or small P aspect is less laid to rest. Right. So in all of the exhibits, we'd really do. After we, you know, we engage in stakeholder consultation, we engage in external uh, expert review, we really try to make sure we're relying on balanced mainstream academic scholarship. And, and, when, and where, that, where there is no kind of consensus yet, or if the consensus is emerging, we try to bring up that aspect of the discussion to keep, to keep, uh, to keep it fresh mm-hmm. and to keep the fact that, you know, if, if the uh, debate surrounding, for example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's report uh, about residential schools being cultural genocide, this is a discussion that's happening right now. Right. So we've updated our exhibit to kind of the same exhibit that you helped us work on with the transatlantic slave trade element to kind of show that this discussion is literally happening as we speak. And there, um, you know, and consensus is being uh, built in different and different quarters. So um, that's happening right now. In other cases, um, that debate is not really going on right now, or that debate is maybe taken a bit of a more ugly, highly contentious ugly characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we try to. We're always trying to kind of again bring home kind of the human rights ideas that we're trying to bring about, but also dealing with the specificities of each particular history. I mean, with the case of uh, the TRC report in Canada, that is like it's a it's Canadian, so we have a mandate to follow Canadian stories and bring them to the Canadian public, and because we have a lot of digital exhibits, we can kind of bring and highlight the fact that this dialogue is something that's happening right now, mm-hmm. and the visitors can kind of take part in by either debating each other at the, at the, within the exhibit or uh, taking part of the discussion elsewhere. read an article. So this particular scholar from uh, University of Sussex, I believe, can't remember her name at the moment, she had done this study and they had surveyed people who went to various exhibits in, in throughout the UK that were attempting to do things like the Human Rights Museum, but they weren't human rights museums. So they were dealing with things like poverty. And, and in that article, she said that although people would think about these things, so they'd be like, oh my God, that's terrible that the working class in England had to work for 15 hours a day and they didn't have unions and, and whatnot. All these terrible... And children had to work and all of that. And so the, the objective, you would think, was to make them understand that these are things we don't want to happen here today. The two things were completely separate, separated in their mind, that the past was the past... Mm-hmm. And that they could still look at inequality and inequity today and just see, oh, well, we're, we have there's this narrative of progress. So this mm-hmm. narrative of progress that allows them to think, well, that was before when those other people were doing things. Now, you know, they could look poverty in the face and still use, I would say, more sophisticated justifications that are appropriate to our time, but that parallel justifications of an earlier time so basically anybody who wants to make it in 2015 can make it so if you're poor it's because you just don't have what it takes to make it or something along those lines i guess what i'm asking is if in this in the human right in the context of human rights do you think that people leave 
making an association between injustice? Does it allow for people to make that link? Does it encourage people to make that link between yeah. now and then, or is it this narrative of progress that happened? It'll ne- you know, that the the never again quote that gets saying said over yeah. and over, and yet we have genocide after genocide after genocide. Yeah, um, like certainly um, our goal is to in- encourage that uh, kind of link between our content and our visitors kind of lived experience and perception of the world around them. Like our mandate is, uh, calls for us to inspire dialogue and reflection uh, for our visitors. Um, so all of our content, not only about uh, genocides or historical atrocities, but about other sorts of human rights uh, violations, always has at its goal kind of this inspiration of uh, reflection and dialogue that happens not only in terms of like the of, of looking at one particular exhibit, but that we're hoping will be one of the results of going through the museum kind of in its, not in its entirety necessarily, but like seeing more than just one exhibit. So you just look at one particular panel that's about the ghetto system, for example, mm-hmm. you might just say like, oh, you know, that's just about the historical past. There's no you know, there's no Nazi ghettos here, right? But looked at kind of in relation to the rest of the gallery and examining the Holocaust, which exists within a broader museum framework, we're, we, we do hope that our visitors will kind of make those connections to some of the human rights uh, failures and successes of the past. We are very, very aware of not presenting human rights as kind of like a utopian progression or that all of the work is not finished or, or is finished now and that, you know, everything is great, especially in our own backyard or anything like that. Like, if you go through the museum and look at the stories that, uh, like, it covers uh, very, very historical topics as well. It also looks at very contemporary topics. We have a, one of the galleries, which I can't speak in much detail about because there's a different curator who works on it, mm-hmm. but it's called Rights Today, which looks at very, very contemporary human rights issues. The gallery Turning Points for Humanity that I uh, work on that includes historical information about human rights instruments like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but we also try to include stories um, in some of the digital components that show how kind of the challenges are ongoing and how individuals and groups are responding to those challenges in order to translate human rights into kind of the lived experience of everyday people. But I don't think, uh, we, we've, we've taken care to not present kind of a naive utopian narrative because you are fighting against a certain skepticism and some visitors, it was like, oh, it's great, you know, to have, to say everyone has human rights, but look at the world, you know. It's great to say never again, but look at again and again, right? Um, but we don't I, don't, I don't think the exhibits present human rights in kind of that Pollyannish manner. information about the Children uh, Convention on Children's Rights and Turning Points for Humanity. In one of the other digital exhibits in that gallery, it looks at, for example, uh, the Children's Movement for Peace in Colombia, which was kind of a children's-focused initiative where uh, children kind of came together, um, kind of started out with some help from UNICEF, but the children really kind of took it over uh, to create kind of a children's mandate for peace in Colombia in the 1990s and held the children's vote for peace. The, like the Convention on Children's Rights does include the idea that the children require protection, but the children also have agency and need to be involved in issues that real, that, that affect their rights. So the third protocol is kind of trying to find a way to me- mechanize that other part that is there kind of in, in the abstract in the convention itself. Because as you say, if it's in the abstract and there's no way of mechanizing it, mm-hmm. what do you do? But in, in our exhibits on children's rights in particular in that gallery, we try to showcase both of those kind of elements regarding kind of the need for protection but also the need for children to be able to exert their human rights and enjoy their human rights as active 
agent human beings as opposed to just objects of protection. There's a lot of exhibits where people are actually trying to work to transform universal ideals of human rights into people's uh, lived experiences. Like, for um, like for example, there's another uh, theme that looks at the rights of Indigenous peoples, and the uh, person who does the introduction to that one is, uh, she was a lawyer who ended up becoming an Aboriginal health advocate because she saw that Aboriginal people faced intense discrimination in the health system. So it's fine, you have the right to health, you have everyone has the same access to healthcare supposedly, but in turn, when you get to the kind of lived experience of individual people, she saw, you know, Aboriginal peoples face intense discrimination and worse treat or problematic treatment in the healthcare industry. So I'm going to start working towards that. I'm going to use my education and my background in order to work as an Aboriginal health advocate. Mm-hmm. So that's just one of many examples of that. It, that it's not as simple as articulating human rights as an ideal. It's an important step to take. Mm-hmm. I mean, the UDHR, you can't, we can't underestimate that it was an important moment where you know, the countries of the UN at the time came together and kind of articulated a base level of human rights that they all agreed that everyone should get, even though there were disagreements about different aspects as well. But it's all fine and dandy to have those kind of ideals, but it actually takes a lot of additional work to translate them into reality. And then there's still the people who are kind of on the grassroots level who are trying to work to translate these ideals and the laws to make sure that pe- like people are actually able to enjoy the rights afforded to them just by the virtue of the fact that they're human. ideas of universal human rights and then for example the African Union had developed their own charter of rights on children because they had made a case that you know there are things specific to the continent so that allows for this space where we start to talk about cultural specificity versus universal human rights have you had challenges dealing with that or have you had people respond in certain kinds of ways around that Well, certainly, like the idea of that you have the idea of universal human rights, but one of the one of hu- a hu- critical human right is the is the right to self determination, which carries with it a whole sense of like the right to be who you want to be and for groups to be who they want to be. And there's that kind of there's one gallery that looks it's called Indigenous Perspectives that looks very much at Canadian or Indigenous peoples um, in Canada's perspective towards the question of human rights and responsibilities that preceded and interacted with, um, I guess, European conceptions of human rights and responsibilities. If you start at the bottom of the museum, first gallery you get to is called What Are Human Rights? Mm -hmm. And it includes um, uh, a number of exhibits that look at that question of what are human rights from different perspectives, be they religious perspectives, cultural perspectives, individual perspective, other types of group perspectives. We try to um, allow those voices and those distinctions to speak for themselves. We don't, we try to show that these things are that different, they exist. speaking to a similar issue. Okay. Yeah. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch Project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. You can also find links to our other projects on our website. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.